So good morning again. As always, I count it a tremendous privilege to be able to share God's Word with all of you. This morning, the plan is to finish up our study of the parables of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 13. We've had several messages on this topic already, so I'm going to do a brief review of what we've seen in the parables. We'll look together at the seventh and final parable, and then we'll define and describe the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing. And finally, I'll provide some implications and application for all of us here in the church. We who have believed on Jesus Christ. Before any of that, let me just say that frankly, there's so much that can be said on this topic. I, I don't have enough time to say it all. And I'm sure that you will have questions when we're done here today. And the truth is that I myself still have some questions that I'm thinking about and that I'm studying. In fact, I was talking to a trusted brother this week about this sermon, and we agreed that the doctrine of the kingdom of God, to get it right, resembles one of those old-time entertainers who keeps a bunch of spinning plates on top of sticks. You've seen these people, right? Actually, I was thinking about doing a little demonstration here this morning with plates and sticks, but um, in the interest of time and to minimize cleanup after the service, I figured I would pass. The point is that if you don't have all the plates upright and spinning at the same time in your mind, then there will be error. This is our challenge. So let's dive in together and let me just hit a couple of points of introduction. First, I need to make clear the distinction between the two types of kingdoms described in the Bible. There is no doubt that the Bible proclaims the universal rule and reign of God over all His creation. For example, you don't have to go there, but Psalm 103 verse 19 says, Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. What we see in a text like Psalm 103 verse 19 is that because God, Yahweh, is the creator of all things, He then, by definition, rules and reigns over all things. And so, in this way, we can unashamedly declare that His kingdom knows only the bounds of creation itself. And for us in the church, this should be a comfort Lord willing, we will come back to this. But I trust you see and understand that this universal rule and reign of God over all His creation is not the kingdom that we have been discussing. It is not the kingdom that is being described in the parables in Matthew chapter 13. It cannot be because, for example, in the parable of the mustard seed, if you have your Bible open, the parable of the mustard seed... Verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom being described there grows. How could something that extends from one corner of the universe to the other corner of the universe grow in any meaningful way? So then we must conclude that the kingdom that Jesus is describing in Matthew 13 is something other than that. And we will see this in just a bit. Second, and you can do this on your own in your favorite Bible software. Any one of you can do a simple New Testament search on the word kingdom. And you can, for yourself, see all the things that Jesus and the apostles have to say about it. 
That is, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Besides what we have seen in Matthew 13, and I'll get to that in a moment, here are some other things you might find when you do this search. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it is near. So in Jesus' day, the kingdom was near. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So, whatever the kingdom is, apparently it is gospel. Apparently it is good news. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we see that in Matthew chapter 5. Whatever the kingdom is, it sure seems to encompass poverty of spirit and persecution. Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know about you, but it seems as though Jesus is saying that His kingdom, and it is His kingdom, it seems as though Jesus is saying that His kingdom is a kingdom that is characterized by righteousness. In the Gospel according to John, was alluded to this morning by Brother Jason. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus answered again this quite confused Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So here we have a couple of very important statements from Jesus about who exactly can see and enter the kingdom of God. John 18.36, Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. Which seems pretty clear. What about the Apostle Paul? What was his view of the kingdom? Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. The Apostle Paul says this. Now I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And what about the preacher to the Hebrews? Therefore, the preacher writes... Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And I could go on, but I won't. Because again, you can do this search on your own. My point, though, in laying these things out is this, that whatever a person's conception of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is, it must be consistent with all that the Bible says about it. 
Let me say that again. Whatever a person's conception of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, it must be consistent with all that the Bible says about it. These are the spinning plates. Finally and briefly as introduction, I need to say just a bit about why we've spent so much time on this topic. And the reason is because it's important. And I realize that's an extremely anticlimactic statement. But what you believe about the kingdom of God, what you believe about the kingdom of heaven, will impact your actions in this life on a day-to-day basis. Let me give you an example. There are some Christians who believe that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not now but is yet future. That is, it will arrive. It is not here and now, but it will arrive. It will appear at some point in time that is future to us. And as a result of this belief, some of these Christians do not believe that texts like the Sermon on the Mount are binding on us as Christians now. In fact, there are entire New Testament books that are not for us, the church, now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Sermon on the Mount is not for you? And there are many similar issues and questions like this. So the point is this. Knowing what the kingdom of God is, is important. And please, do not even get me started about how the gospel according to Matthew, the whole book, is a chiasm with the kingdom parables of Matthew 13 at the peak. Because we will miss the holiday. Okay? There's so much going on here. And the kingdom parables, what we're talking about today, is so important. Let's move on to the meat of this thing then. Before we summarize the first six parables from Matthew chapter 13, I just want to quickly point out to you, so this is point number one for those of you keeping track, keeping score. I just want to point out that the new covenant necessitates a new kingdom. The new covenant necessitates a new kingdom. Let's go back to chapter 8. You can follow along in your Bible or in the insert. We've obviously seen this text before in this series on Matthew that Pastor Scott and I and now Pastor Dave from last week have been preaching through was read earlier, but I want to look at it again. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Verse 11, Jesus says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, but, that's the word. 
But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So I want you to see closely verses 11 and 12. You see that there are two kingdoms mentioned there? On the front side of the butt, at the beginning of verse 12, we have the kingdom of heaven. This is what we have been talking about. On after the butt, but is a word, of course, that provides contrast. After the butt, at the beginning of verse 12, we have the sons of the kingdom. Now quickly, to understand this, we need to remember and realize to whom Jesus is speaking, with whom Jesus is interacting. Here, as we can see from verse 5, Jesus is interacting with a centurion, a Roman centurion, and he's a Gentile. A non-Jew. How do we know this? Look at verse 10, please. Jesus says, right, when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard what the Roman centurion said to him, he, Jesus, marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So the Roman centurion is being contrasted with those in Israel, who frankly are Jesus' typical audience. Matthew's using this interaction between Jesus and the Gentile Roman centurion to draw a distinction, to draw a contrast between the kingdom of heaven into which, verse 11, many will come from east and west. These are also Gentiles. The the ones coming from east and west, these are Gentiles. This interaction is intended to draw a distinction and a contrast with verse 12, the sons of the kingdom. What kingdom is that? That's the kingdom of Israel. The sons of the kingdom in verse 12 are the Jews who soon will be cast into the outer darkness. And why? Why? Because of their lack of faith. In contrast to the Gentile Roman centurion, their lack of faith, which will be most clearly manifest in their rejection of their Messiah and King. Jesus, our Lord. So what's the point? The point is this. The arrival of the new covenant in Jesus Christ necessitates the arrival of a new kingdom. A kingdom in which Gentiles recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in which the Jews, the sons of the kingdom, are cast out due to unbelief. Are there subtleties associated with all of this? Yes, of course there are, but I'm just reading you the text. So whatever the kingdom of heaven is, with the arrival of the new covenant, the kingdom of heaven must be a new kingdom and not the old. Not the old covenant kingdom of Israel. All right. That catches us up to Matthew 13. Let's very briefly review what we've already seen in the first six parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. First, 
We saw the parable of the sower, which in Matthew 13 is found in verses 1 through 9. The explanation of the parable of the sower is found in verses 18 to 23 of that same chapter. And what we saw there very briefly, very briefly, is that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of word and spirit. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of word and spirit. The second parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's found in verses 24 through 30. Explanation in verses 36 to 43 tell us that the sons of the kingdom, this is important because I'm going to emphasize something here as well, tells us the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil both grow together in the world. In the world. Jesus says in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 13, the field is the world. The Greek is cosmos. It means the whole world. And you'll see in just a moment why I'm emphasizing this point. Parables 3 and 4 are the parables of the mustard seed found in verses 31 to 33 and leaven. The parables of the mustard seed and leaven. And these parables tell us that the kingdom of heaven... The kingdom of heaven will start small and grow invisibly over time. The kingdom of heaven will start small and grow invisibly over time. This, as Pastor Scott said a few weeks ago, is in contrast to the Jews' expectation for the messianic kingdom, which they assumed was going to start big and arrive obviously with power and immediately. That was what they were expecting, even all the way into Acts chapter one after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven provide contrast to the Jewish expectation of the first century. And parables 5 and 6, which we heard about last week from Brother Dave. Love that guy. Parables of the lost treasure and the pearl of great value. These are related to the song we sang this morning, which I mentioned, verses 44 through 46. What we learned last week, among other things, is that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it demands complete and utter devotion. It demands that one lose or be willing to lose everything of worldly value that it, the kingdom of heaven, might be gained. We also see from these two parables that some people stumble upon it and some people actually seek it out. That's what we saw last week. Let's look together then at the seventh parable at the kingdom. It should not surprise any of you that there are seven parables. This is Jesus speaking again, beginning in verse 47 of Matthew chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. So a few things that we have to see in this parable. First, we see something similar, not exactly the same, but similar to what we saw in the parable of the wheat and tares. And that is that the righteous live, or swim, if you will, along with the unrighteous, the bad fish, but this time in the kingdom until the end of the age. So what's in view here in the seventh parable, the parable of the dragnet, is smaller in scope than what we saw previously in the parable of the wheat and tares. In that previous parable, Jesus says, as I said, in verse 38, the field in which the good seed of the kingdom was sown, the field is the world, cosmos. Here in this last parable, the dragnet is the kingdom. So listen, please. This is, this is so important. Not only will the true sons of the kingdom grow together with the sons of the evil one in the world, verse 38, but here in this seventh and last parable, we see that even in the kingdom itself, there will be the righteous and the unrighteous, and therefore there will also need to be a separation at the end of the age. Let me say that again. Not only will the true sons of the kingdom grow together with the sons of the evil one in the world, but here in this seventh and last parable, we see that even in the kingdom itself, there will be righteous and the unrighteous, and therefore there will need to be a separation at the end of the age. Got those plates humming? Yeah, you got them? Okay. The point of the parable of the dragnet is different from the point of the parable of the wheat and tares. I want you to see that. And this makes sense. Because why would Jesus tell two parables that make the exact same point? And why would Matthew, who has to write all this out, why would Matthew spend valuable ink and paper on two parables, separated in the narrative, by the way, on two parables that merely make the same point. I contend that he wouldn't and that he didn't. Alright? So, it's time. If we had a drummer, I'd have a drum room. It's time to answer the big question. What then exactly is the kingdom of heaven? We've got all these plates in the air. Brothers and sisters, this is not trivial. To get the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven correct, it takes work. And I trust that's why you're here. And it's not trivial because as I previously said, your perception or our perception, our understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is will impact our day-to-day decisions and our understanding of what the rest of the scriptures are telling you. So here we go. You have the insert, right? Let's begin with paragraph 19. Paragraph 19 from our Confession of Faith, the 1646 First London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's in your bulletin. You can find this confession at our website. We're very public about it. We're not ashamed of it. It's coming up on 400 years old. 
In some sense, this is our connection to our Baptist forefathers who have come before us. We're not making it up as we go. This is kind of what I mean, Pastor. Am I right? So I've provided the relevant paragraphs for you this morning so that you can have them in front of you and you're not on your phone searching the web. And before we dive into the confession, though, let me just say briefly this topic, the kingdom of God, it provides an excellent demonstrative example of why, why creeds and confessions and catechisms are so valuable to the church. Let me just say something all, uh, obvious that all of you know to be true. The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. Even its most glaring, didactic, or teaching passages, the passage, passages of Scripture that are explicitly intended to teach, even those portions are bound up in personal letters, say, from the Apostle Paul to a church that perhaps he has planted. And so, though we must be careful about the use of creeds and confessions and catechisms, we should never elevate them to the level of inspired Scripture, and we should always hold them, as it were, loosely. These can, in fact, take a complex doctrine, like the kingdom of God, and summarize it in such a way that it is two things. One, it's consistent with and faithful to the Scriptures, and two, it is a clear and concise summary, digestible in a few sentences. We do not make a habit here of exegeting creeds and confessions and catechisms. All of you who have spent any amount of time here with us know this. So, this is a little bit different from what we do normally. But we're going to our confession this morning because it provides what we at Abiding Grace Church believe is a clear and concise summary of what the Bible teaches on this doctrine of the kingdom of God. We begin with paragraph 19, which is entitled, Christ our King, which will come up again in two weeks. Concerning his kingly office, being risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and having all power in heaven and earth, Christ spiritually governs his church and exercises his power over all angels and men, good and bad, to the preservation and salvation of the elect, and to the overruling and destruction of his enemies. By this kingly power, he applies the benefits, virtue, and fruits of his prophecy, that is, his teaching and preaching, and priesthood to his elect, subduing their sins, preserving and strengthening them in all their conflicts against Satan, the world, and the flesh, and keeping their hearts in faith and devotion, that is, fear as a child by his spirit. By his mighty power, he rules the vessels of wrath, using, limiting, and restraining them as it seems good to his infinite wisdom. Now, we've already seen in paragraph 14 a few weeks ago that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, occupies three offices. You all know what they are. They are the office of prophet, priest, and king. And here in paragraph 19, let me just show you the extent of his reign. And you should not be surprised, I don't think, that the extent of his reign is twofold. Look with me again at the first part of the first sentence. Concerning his kingly office being risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and having, one, all power in heaven and earth, two, Christ spiritually governs his church. 
So I began this morning's sermon by talking about how the Bible describes two kinds of kingdoms. The first was the sovereign, universal rule and reign of God over all His creation. The second was the kingdom of heaven, which is described by Jesus Himself in the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And here, here in these first few words of paragraph 19 of the Confession, we see both of these. We see Jesus Christ in his kingly office, having both, quote, all power in heaven and earth, and the spiritual government of his church, which is, frankly, a dead giveaway for where we're going next. Paragraph 33. This is the kingdom that the parables in Matthew 13 are talking about. Paragraph 33. I have pointed some of you to this paragraph previously as we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven, so here it is. It is entitled, The Church, Christ's Spiritual Kingdom on Earth. Jesus Christ has here on earth a spiritual kingdom, which is His church, whom He has purchased and redeemed to Himself as a special inheritance. This church is a fellowship of visible saints, called and separated from the word world, sorry, by the word and spirit of God to the visible profession of faith of the gospel. They are baptized into that faith and are joined to the Lord and to each other by mutual agreement in the practical enjoyment of the ordinances commanded by Christ their head and king. Those ordinances, of course, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, we could spend the rest of the day today, as Jason said this morning, looking at each of the phrases and clauses in this paragraph. We're not going to do that either. I assume most of you are off work tomorrow, so you can spend the day tomorrow if you like. But I just want to point out that this concise paragraph encapsulates some of the things that we've seen from the parables of the kingdom. It's a kingdom of word and spirit which we saw from the parable of the sower. It is a fellowship of visible saints called and separated from the world. We see other things that I mentioned this morning. For example, the message of the kingdom is gospel. It is good news. That is our message. So that's it. Our king, the king, rules and reigns from His heavenly throne over the universe and over His church until, at the end of this age, He returns to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, both in the world, which we saw in the parable of the wheat and tares, and and in the church, which we saw from the parable of the dragnet. And that's my first point of application this morning. The seventh parable of the kingdom, the parable of the dragnet, which we saw just a few moments ago in verses 47 through 50 of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus, please listen, Jesus tells the parable of the dragnet as a warning to those in the church. Those who associate themselves with the church, with the king. He says, listen, the kingdom, the church is like a dragnet. 
It scoops up. It, it has within it both good fish and bad fish. It has both the righteous and the unrighteous. We have to acknowledge this. Even as Baptists. And when we acknowledge this, then we must respond. We must make our calling and our election sure. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. We must examine ourselves. We must test ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Remember well, please, beloved, that not everyone who cries out, Lord, Lord, will enter what? The kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And today, today is the day for this deep heart work. Are you, are you a son or a daughter of the kingdom? If you are convinced that you don't need such an examination, then please know that it is you who is in most need. So that's the first point of application this morning. Be convinced that not all who associate themselves with the kingdom are actually citizens of the kingdom. This we learn from the parable of the dragnet. Second point of application. Please look with me at paragraph 49 of the Confession. It's entitled, Believers to Obey God Rather Than Men. But in case we do not find the government to favor us in this, and by the way, I'll stop here, right? This is referring to the previous paragraph in the confession where the civil government is not allowing the church to worship and obey Christ according to their conscience, okay? So that's what's going on in context. But in case we do not find the government to favor us in this, yet we dare not suspend our practice because we believe we ought to go in obedience to Christ in professing the faith which was once delivered to the saints, which faith is declared in the Holy Scriptures, and this our confession of faith, a part of them. And we are to witness to the truth of the Old and New Testaments to the death, if necessity requires it, in the midst of all trials and afflictions, as his saints of old have done, not accounting our possessions, lands, wives, children, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, yes, and our own lives dear to us, so that we may finish our course with joy, remembering always that we ought to obey God rather than men, who when we have finished our course and kept the faith, will give us the crown of righteousness. To God, we must give an account of all of our actions, and no man is able to discharge us from this. There are three things in here that we must see. First, we must see in this paragraph that we, in the church, ought to unashamedly obey Christ. Yes, even occasionally in defiance of the civil magistrate. Why? Because Christ is king over all. We've already taken care of that from the earlier paragraph. He's not merely the king over the church, the kingdom of heaven, which he most assuredly is, but he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is king over all creation, including all men, and yes, even over every civil magistrate and government. The Bible is clear on this issue. 
The civil government is put in place to be a servant. Literally, it says, a deacon of God himself. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. You can check the text there. So when faced with the decision of whom to obey, our choice is clear. Church, we obey Christ, our and their king. The Apostle Paul writes this, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold Together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Second, in this paragraph, this paragraph makes clear the witness, the witness that we have, the witness that the church has to the civil magistrate and to the world. And that witness is, quote, the truth of the old and new testaments. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So what exactly does this mean for us? It means that although we should not expect the civil magistrate to obey Christ as king, and although we should not expect anyone in the world outside the kingdom to obey Christ as king, we have a duty to witness to them the truth of the scriptures, which proclaim righteousness and justice and the future coming of the king at the end of of the age. They need to know that. Listen with fresh ears, if you will, to what the Apostle Paul said to the philosophers on Mars Hill. Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Listen, the times of ignorance God overlooked But now, after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, but now He commands all people, all people, all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This is our message. And yes, it is a message of righteousness and judgment. 
but it is also a message of the gospel. Third, it's clear from paragraph 49 of the Confession that this kingdom, this king, is worth dying for. Let me read you these words. Perhaps they sound familiar. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it demands complete and utter devotion. It demands that one lose or be willing to lose everything of worldly value that it, the kingdom of heaven, this king, might be gained. This is just the parable of the lost treasure and the pearl of great value. Right here in paragraph 49. The king died... The king, our king, rose again from the dead. And we too, his subjects, will also rise again. Here we have no lasting city, but we go to him and he will come again. And he will bring us with him that we might live in his presence forever. Do you believe that? Because if you do then you won't hold on to anything you have here. And in this life, things don't always go the way we would choose for them to go. Many of us in this room have had some really bad days, and some of you very recently. She's actually watching the little ones today. And on those days, we might ask ourselves, is Jesus really the king over all things? Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, can't you make this stop? And it's in those moments, on those days, where the king says to us, his people, trust me. I know what I'm doing. We must believe this, and we must believe that one day our king will right every wrong, that he will wipe away every tear, and he will show himself to the whole universe, even to you and to me, that he is all wise in all things. Brothers and sisters, have you understood these things? Matthew chapter 13, verse 51. If so, then the exhortation is this. Take this gospel. Take this good news of the kingdom of heaven. This treasure that we have. Verse 52. This treasure that we have. See, the disciples have the treasure. Do you see that in verse 52? Take it out as faithful ambassadors into this dark and sinful world. Let us proclaim to the king's enemies that yes, they are in fact the king's enemies. So many of the people out there don't even know that they're the king's enemies. They don't even know that they're in peril every day. Let us proclaim to the king's enemies that reconciliation with the king has been made available to them by the shed and precious blood of the king himself, that their sins can be forgiven, that they can have a perfect righteousness that qualifies them to stand in his presence, and that his kingdom, his kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is worth the loss of everything that any of us hold dear in this world. That's the message. 
And be bold, brothers and sisters. Listen, this is so important. Be bold. Be bold. I'm preaching to myself. Be bold, because when we go and take this message to the lost and fallen sinful world outside of those doors right there, we go, we go with the authority of the King. Who, after His resurrection from the dead, said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, the King says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Come quickly, King Jesus. Let's pray.